If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you ask if you want to follow along with us. We'll be reading the entirety of that chapter. That you use the black Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And if you use that Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 3 on page 758 of that Bible. Although our name doesn't say it, we are indeed Baptists here at Crossway, and we are gladly Baptists at Crossway. If you were to take a poll of people out in the world, they would probably tell you that all Baptists are sort of cut from the same cloth. They all believe kind of the same things, and they act like the same kind of people. We believe that, as far as all Baptists go, that baptism is central and important in the life of the church. That's why we call ourselves Baptists. And what's more, if you call yourself a Baptist, you obviously are not just the only ones who practice baptism, but you believe that baptism is reserved for those who have confessed their faith, who believe already in their hearts, and and can actually put words to that in some form or fashion. We call it creedal baptism. But beyond that, to be honest, Baptist churches vary greatly in what they can believe and what they can practice. There are churches that, like ours, are a bit more on the Reformed side, maybe not in our ecclesiology, but certainly in our doctrine of salvation, what we think are the the foundations of our salvation and how that salvation comes to us. We are much more Reformed than, say, other Baptist churches, which are more Arminian, and they they view the, the sort of background to how we come to faith differently. There are certain Baptist churches that believe strongly that we ought to associate with one another, help one another, guide one another, direct one another. And there are others who think that they should be completely and utterly independent from any churches that are around them. Baptist churches can be incredibly liberal, believing almost anything that is of form and fashion on the left, whether politically or theologically. There are some who are so fundamental that they would look at our church and they would say, what a bunch of libs. They got women there wearing pants in front of God and man. Truth be told, we are as different as any churches can be different. But even in the area of baptism, we also differ. Many of our brothers and sisters would tend to see baptism as just a symbolic act. It's, it's an act that does actually initiate you into the church. They would say that that is right and true. But beyond that, there's, there's nothing more than symbolism. And we want to agree with that as far as there is indeed symbolism there. It's a beautiful, beautiful symbolic thing to place somebody into the depths of water where we have symbolized in Scripture repeatedly as death and being brought out in the newness of life, the, the picture of washing that also comes with that, it is, it is beautiful. But it is more than just a confession. It is more than just an introduction. It's more than just a symbol. The New Testament holds out just how powerful baptism is meant to be. The Apostle Peter does this two different times and in two different places. In 1 Peter 3.18, He puts the importance of baptism as about the strongest way he possibly can. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's, that, that's not heresy. Like, that's, that's right from the Word of God. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter goes a quite, quite a long ways there. Baptism saves you. Now, if you were to meet some Baptist on the street and say, why are you a Baptist? And he says, well, baptism saves you. Immediately you'd correct him, and Peter would be there in the background saying, no, no, he's right. Baptism saves you. But Peter doesn't just say it in his own epistle. He says it in the first sermon after Pentecost in Acts 2. He preaches a sermon, and the people say, hey, what, what are we supposed to do? And Peter responds to them in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's strong language. Now, I, I would have to say that it makes holding simply a symbolic view of baptism nearly impossible. Now, I've, I've preached about baptism before. If you want to find it, it's on our our website, you can go to our, our sermon logs, and back in August of 2021, when my son and Nate were baptized, we talked about baptism and the importance of it and what it means, and you can go back there. We're not doing that again. But we have a question before us. How do we keep salvation as a work of God, as holy a work of God, as a gift that God gives to us, completely outside of any work that we have done, and at the same time, Honor these words of Peter as the very words of God, that baptism saves you, that baptism is there for the forgiveness of sins. How can we say that baptism saves us? How does it gain for us the forgiveness of sins? And what, if anything, does it mean for our walk afterward? These are marvelous questions for us to consider. And we will do so as we we come to Matthew chapter 3 and we think of the the original Baptist, John the Baptist, and his relationship to Jesus Christ our Lord and what happens here in Matthew chapter 3. So let us read that chapter before we think through these issues. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Excuse me, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were, being, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees." Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, 
But he is but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of our God. As we consider this word this morning, the first thing I want to say to you is you need to get prepared by John. Get prepared by John. Matthew jumps several decades at least with his little phrase, in those days. We don't know exactly what time the family came back from Egypt and settled in Nazareth, but we do know that this is at least a couple of decades later. And here, Matthew is going to start to introduce us to adult Jesus and for his ministry. And he introduces him in what we might think is a rather weird way, but for the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all introduce us to him in the exact same way, through John the Baptist. John comes both as a preacher and as a baptizer. And before we get into the meat of his ministry, though, it's, I think, important to take a a step back and to talk about something to do with Jewish history, if you'll give me just a moment, because I think that most of us, in thinking about what the Jews believed at the time, have this sort of truncated view of how the Jews approached God and approached salvation that makes it sound like what they, they thought was that they were good enough by their own works and by the things that they did alone to give God reason to grant them salvation. So if they stood before God before the last days and he asked them, why should I let you into my heaven? They could point to the works that they've done. They can point to the keeping of the law and the seriousness of the law. And they think that God would say, yeah, that's, that's good enough. Sort of this clear-cut image of legalism. But it's not quite that easy. I'm going to be quite reductionistic in this because there's numerous ways to take this, but there's two main threads that go through Judaism after the exile. Because the exile did teach the Israelites some important lessons. First, it taught them that striving to keep the law was important, And its neglect led to the exile in the first place. It doesn't take long to read through the prophets to know that it was the rampant idolatry and violence and greed and the lack of keeping the law that led to God taking them up out of the land in the first place. And by the time they come back, we already have in the book of Nehemiah this sort of grand calling for the people of Judah, who are the main tribe that's left, that's why we call them Jews, the tribe of Judah who is brought back to take seriously the word of God, to take seriously the law. So they commit themselves to that. They commit themselves to honestly trying to keep the law in all of its, its details, to every little bit, because they thought this was the reason why we were kicked out. If we were kicked out because we're lawlessness, then it makes sense for us to maintain the law, to strictly follow the law as best we can. Secondly, though, and somewhat ironically in light of that, 
The exile also taught them that the election of God and his grace in electing them alone was what made them secure. They were not without this concept of grace and mercy. While keeping the law might be good for the individual, the nation would always be preserved by God because of his grace and kindness, his calling and his election. As they considered the words of Deuteronomy and how small of a nation they were and how much greater the other nations were and how God set his love upon them simply because God set his love upon them, they were all the more sure that God would stay with them, that he would be with them, that he would help them, and that he would always come back to them because he loved them and that that love was unconditional and that that love was undeserved, but it was God's love to give. Hosea makes this point forcefully. After talking to the nation of Israel and saying, God's going to come and he's going to not only remove you from the land, but he is going to wipe you out. He is going to destroy you. Hosea puts these words on the lips of God in Hosea 11 verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The Jews were assured their place with God. So even as they strove to keep the law, and they realized that that striving did not liberate them from the Romans, it didn't liberate them from the Medes and the Persians, Nevertheless, they understood that while being oppressed, while the foot of Rome was always and ever upon their neck, God would save them. He would keep them, for they were elect. So when John shows up and starts baptizing and specifically preaching the way he does, he specifically challenges both of those things. First, he challenges everyone who is coming out to consider the work that the law has upon them and the work of the law that they do will never, ever be enough. Matthew immediately tells us that this is the whole purpose of his coming out when he quotes from Isaiah and he says, this is the reason, this is the, the man who is spoken of by Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The whole point of John showing up was to tell people that you need to prepare the way of the Lord. And we would be right to assume the Lord isn't sort of geographically challenged. He, he doesn't need valleys raised up and mountains lowered down to be able to get from Babylon back to Israel. Rather, it's quite clear that he is calling upon the people to prepare their hearts for the coming kingdom. This kingdom that is imminent, that is about to break in. He's telling them to prepare themselves. By the fact that they're coming out at all, it means that they're not prepared. By the fact that they're coming out at all, it means that they're not ready. Though The works of the law that they were doing are not preparing them, are not getting them ready for the kingdom of God in full. More needs to happen. You need more than just your work to be ready for this kingdom. You cannot possibly believe that you've got everything figured out and that your life is completely right in front of God. You are wrong. You are sinful. You're needing to confess and thereby have your hearts prepared and ready for this kingdom that's about to come. It's not just a call to confession, but a call for humility. Confession is simply admitting that you are not ready for the kingdom of God to come, that you need help. 
Notice it's also not just a call to confess a a sinfulness, but sins. They weren't baptized confessing that they were sinful. They weren't even baptized confessing sin in sort of a a general milk toast way, as a way of sort of stating how humans err or how we're all messed up in sort of the most general of terms. But they were baptized by confessing their sins, individual sins, sins that set them apart from everybody. It's easy for us to say, well, I'm sinful, you're sinful, we're all sinful. And that doesn't make me particularly worse than you. But once we start confessing sins, your sins that I don't hold, and my sins that you think are ridiculous, well, then we, we start to kind of be individualized and set aside, and our wickedness is truly, truly exposed. People would come, no doubt, talking about their gossip and their lying, stealing and anger, their cheating, their lust and their greed. And John would call upon them to repent of those things. But he pushes them further to consider that their very identity was of no promise of God's kindness to them. That the fact that these were Israelites, these are not foreign peoples who are flocking to John. Baptism was rarely done in those days. It just, this, was, this was not something that the Jews had a really good handle on. They didn't do a lot of this. If they ever did it, and it wasn't always the case that they did, it was for outsiders coming in. Once you're in Israel, there's no reason for baptism. Once you're in Israel, there's no reason for these things. You were set. You're part of the people of God. God's protection, his care, his love will always be over you. And John's saying, that isn't true. He threatens the understanding of God's election that ran rampant throughout Judaism at that time. And both of these things are fully brought into view when the Sadducees and the Pharisees show up. They showed up not to be baptized, but simply to to take stock of what was going on there. We know that they didn't get baptized because later Jesus challenges them on this very issue. And John, John minces no words for them. He calls them serpents like the devil. He's pictured here as Elijah, as the one who was to come. He's, he's pictured as this forerunner of Jesus that we expect from the end of Malachi. And given that when he says, how did you know to flee the wrath that was to come? If you read the prophets, you know that they're supposed to flee the wrath that is to come. It's like, I'm not going to ruin anything for you. It's kind of the meat of the prophets, right? And so when he says this, he's, he's kind of taking a dig at them. I think he's looking at them and saying, you guys read the Bible well enough to know that you're supposed to flee from wrath, huh? Good for you. But he warns them, don't dare come down here just to confess. Don't make empty noises about your sinfulness or about how you are like other people, sinners. But actually be prepared to put that sin behind you, which is one of the reasons why we don't want to just generally confess that we're sinners, right? Because it's hard to stop being a sinner. That's why we want to confess individual sins and then start to walk away from them, to to live the fruit of righteousness, to have the fruit of righteousness, as John says here, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just say you're a thief and that you have stolen, but stop doing it and work to stop doing it. Repentance has to have fruit that comes with it. It's not just a change of mind. 
It's not just an attitude that, that says, hey, I know that I've done wrong and I can admit that I've done wrong, but it's seeking to stop doing that wrong. But it's also the fact that repentance is absolutely necessary. You can't simply come proposing that because Abraham is your father that, that you've got no issues here. That, that you don't even need to repent. As long as you understand who God is, you understand who Abraham is, you can just, you're in because you're in. You know what I mean? And John says, no, you need to repent. These aren't just the warnings for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These are our warnings as well. Our repentance cannot simply be just a mental reminder that we are somehow sinful like everybody else. But our repentance should be pointed at specific sins. We must work to eliminate those from our lives. There's got to be an honest desire not to do them anymore and to seek to move away from them. So when we, we know that we are sinful in this area, we seek to rearrange our lives, our friendships. We get help. We ask for accountability. We are willing to, in the words of Jesus, lose an eye that we might gain the kingdom of heaven. Because we know how serious is the calling, not just of John the Baptist, when he says, the axe is already at the roots. You, you continue, and, and the Lord sees that your tree bears no fruit. That tree comes down and it's thrown into the fire. But what's more? Our repentance not only cannot just be the sort of simple mental, I know that I've done wrong, and not, not seek to change, but we cannot presume upon Abraham, and doubt many people in here would be, but let me tell you, you also cannot, cannot presume upon Jesus either. Many people think that this is the sign of faith. That you sin, you know Jesus will, will save you from your sins. There are plenty of people who believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins, was buried, resurrected for their justification, who claim that, who call upon that, who believe that truly with their heart. But there is a difference, friends, between trusting Jesus and presuming upon him. Presumption allows you to keep sinning. Presumption is faith with no repentance. And there is no true faith without repentance. There's just doctrine. Doctrine can keep you pure, but doctrine cannot save you. Presumption will kill you. We're not called to presume upon Jesus, but to follow Jesus. Presumption sears your conscience, hardens your heart to the evil of sin. So your response is, he will forgive, because that's what he does. And not a begging for forgiveness, not a pleading and a sorrow for what you have done and a changing of your life. This is how we prepare ourselves we prepare ourselves by knowing that we are not only sinful, but that we indeed have things to repent of. We, we prepare ourselves by knowing that, that as we stand, we are not right before God, that things need to change in our lives. And what's more, we are willing to change them if we can. We're willing to seek the help that we need. And let's be quite clear, we do this repeatedly in our lives but always in an effort to make our good, to make good our original confession. 
So we, we come to the Lord and we say that we're sinful and we ask him for forgiveness. And every single time that we do it after that, it's always to refer back to that original preparation. We're always saying we want to make good on that. What I wanted to be back then, I'm still not now and I'm still working on it. Forgive my sin. I repent and I will walk before you faithfully. Yet in all of this, we must admit that this is just preparation. It isn't the finality. And John knows this well. He, he says, there's one coming after me who is mightier than I, and he's the one you need. John's preparing the way of the Lord. He is not the Lord. He is preparing the Lord, and he is asking you to prepare yourself for the Lord, but he is not the provision that we need. He might prepare the ingredients, but he is not the chef. And he might prepare the tools, but he's not the surgeon. He might gather the materials, but he's not the builder. He knows where we need to be prepared, but then he is more than willing to step aside for the Lord. So while you get prepared by John, you need to get provision from Jesus. Point two is just that, get provision from Jesus. Given all that was just said, both in Scripture and by me, it's a miracle that Jesus is here at all. It's very odd. John is calling this huge crowd out from Judea and Jerusalem and the area around the Jordan, but one place is not drawing great crowds for John, and that is Galilee. Galilee's about 70 miles away. Jesus probably would have made this trip by foot. And the people were going down there to confess their sins. The whole point of it was repentance and confession. And then Jesus shows up, and not only is he not like traveling with friends, it's not like there's a major crowd, he's not following everybody else. He's coming on his own to come to this place where there's repentance and there's confession of sin. And John immediately notices the problem. He stops him and he says, listen, Jesus, there's no reason for you to be here. This is a, people are confessing sins and they're repenting. You have no need for this. You don't need to make straight the paths of the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but you're the Lord, Right? And second, he, he basically says the scene's backwards. Not only do you not belong here, but, but you don't need my baptism. You don't need a baptism of water. You don't need a baptism of preparation. But I, I actually need your baptism. I need, I need the Holy Spirit. I need help. I need the provision that you, you yourself give. Jesus, for his part, waves all of this away very quickly. If you're a fan of Frozen, basically the musical of Jesus' life here is Let It Be. Or wait, no. Let it go. The Beatles sang Let It Be. One of those songs is better than the other, and I'm going to let you figure out which one it is. But he, he just very quickly blows them off. He just says, John, it's okay, man. Don't worry about that. And then he, he says this sort of enigmatic, it's right for us to do this because we're here to fulfill all righteousness. Not much help is actually given from the text itself. I think that we can conclude something about what Jesus means by that from the surrounding context. First, we need to understand, again, what righteousness means, especially in the book of Matthew. And he's already hinted at it when we talked a couple of weeks ago about Joseph. If you read in Paul this language of righteousness, whether someone is righteous or they're, they're striving for righteousness or something like that, what Paul almost always means is this sort of end-time, final judgment righteousness where in the courtroom of God, you are declared innocent. But that's hardly what Matthew means by it. What Matthew means by it is one of those other meanings where it's a descriptor of, of somebody who just generally does what the Lord requires of them. 
They're not perfect in every single thing they do. We're not implying that, but there are people who walk generally in the precepts of the Lord, people who generally follow the course of God's law and provision for their life. This is what Matthew means. Righteousness in the book of Matthew has a lot to do with doing what God commands. So Jesus here is talking about God's will specifically for his life. And therefore, because it's God's will for his life, it's God's will for John's life too. And a lot of what Jesus goes through in his life is is God's will in general for all of us. The the pursuit of righteousness, the love of neighbors, all of that, that, those are things that we share with him. But there's a lot of God's calling upon Jesus' life that is not for us. This is part of what it means for Jesus to fulfill the will of God for his life. So we've seen up to this point, Jesus identifies with us. We talked in the beginning of chapter 2 about the fact that Matthew uses this word child to continually refer to Jesus because Jesus has taken on our frailty and our weakness. He is not one who is powerful over all things, but being made into a child, into an infant. He needs to be protected because he's frail and fragile. We've also said that, that he is emblematic of, of Israel, that just as Israel was called out of Egypt, Jesus would be called out of Egypt because he's got to follow the pattern. He, he is meant to be Israel. He is in the shoes of Israel. He is walking for Israel. But you can hear both of those things and come to completely the wrong conclusion. You can, you can hear both of those things and think, Jesus is here for those who are weak, but Jesus is also here for those who are righteous. After all, not all Israel is Israel. And maybe... Jesus is here both for the weak and the righteous because Rome has their foot on the necks of Israel. And and those who are righteous in the land need a Savior who will lead them out, need power over their enemies, need power over their oppressors. And so maybe that's who Jesus is here for. After all, being weak, being frail and being fragile, it's not a sin. So maybe he is... Maybe he's just here for the righteous and the good and the holy of Israel. But if that was what we might have thought, there's absolutely no illusion here as to who Jesus is identifying with. He comes to do much more than just identify with Israel in general or even the righteous of Israel. Here, he specifically identifies with sinful people, with those who are not just weak, And certainly not just those who are righteous, but sinners. He identifies with them to give them forgiveness, to show grace to those who are dirty and lost. As Paul puts it so starkly, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. Jesus stands in full agreement. This is the will of God for his life. Not just that he come and be a great example, but that he identify with sinful people. That he become the very thing that we are. So this Jesus, the King of heaven, who reigns and brings the kingdom of heaven here to earth with the Spirit of God in tow, comes down to this very basin of sin. The water that has been contaminated and infected with sin, declared to have sin floating in it and washed away in it. And we know what happens in this broken and fallen world when that which is holy 
comes in contact with that which is unholy. And a lot of us are tempted to think, well, the holy has got to win, but in this fallen world, the holy always loses that fight. There's, a, there's an entropy and a gravity to unholiness that always undoes holiness. So a priest who is ritually holy goes out and, and touches even an animal, a dead carcass, anything that is unholy. The contamination works one way and one way only. He doesn't make the unholy thing holy. The unholy thing makes him unholy. This is even true of the the most holy things in the world, the tabernacle of God and the temple of God. Simply because they existed in a land where sin was present, because they existed in a land where human beings in their own sinfulness dwelled, it itself needed to be cleansed from sin because it was contaminated and infected with this unholiness. So what happens when Jesus touches the water? Well, he leaves unstained, but rather more. He purifies that same baptismal water for us. He arises, but notice, he's not confessing his sin when he arises, but rather heaven confesses over him. The Spirit descends, anointing him in the presence of all with the Spirit. The heavens rent, and the voice declares. The whole image of him going down into this very water where, where sin was present, where the people were present in their sin and in their unrighteousness and in their uncleanliness, is meant to show that Jesus identifies with that people, but at the exact same time, to show that he is not polluted and pulled down by their sin. The weight of sin and the pollution of sinners does not dismay or contaminate him. He is powerful enough to reverse that entropy and powerful enough to reverse that gravity. The whole scene is chock full of imagery. Matthew leaves it general enough for us to guess at without having any one direct image. The spirit hovering over the waters might be an image from Genesis 1 and the new creation. It might be an image from post-judgment arc when Noah lets the dove out to find that there is indeed dry ground and God has been good to his promise to bring them through judgment. The voice can be from a number of passages in the Old Testament. Abraham being told to take up his son, his only son, his beloved begotten son. It could be from Psalm 2. The son as king over Israel is named. It could be, again, an identification of Jesus with Israel. After all, in the book of Exodus, we we had already read that Israel is my firstborn son, says the Lord. It could be from Isaiah 49 that Jesus is God's suffering servant. It doesn't matter. What matters is that far from being polluted, Jesus comes up out of that water having cleansed the water for us. When Jesus comes up, we have one of the only occasions in Matthew where we would suspect that the Trinity is quite clearly present. The Son and the Spirit and the Father all there. The only other time that this happens is again at the baptismal waters. But it is at the end of Jesus' ministry when he tells his disciples, you will go out and you will baptize all of the nations, those who you are calling as my disciples, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The water is so transformed that we are welcomed into the very presence of God by this water. 
baptized into his will and formed by his spirit. Jesus identifies with us so that in the exact same place we can identify with him. And I want to make it clear that we do this best biblically, not by inviting him into our hearts, nor by praying a prayer. And I don't mean to diminish those things. I think that those things can be right and good and true. And I think that 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 is a good place to start. But the biblical imagery that we keep coming up against, where your public confession and your public identification with Jesus is made known, is in baptism. It's baptism. This is why Peter speaks of baptism, granting forgiveness and giving us salvation. Because baptism is the confession of your sin. It is the confession of Jesus as Lord. It is the confession that you are united to him. And it's the symbol that the church blesses that union by the basis of your confession. Jesus becomes our sin. He takes it on. He places it on his shoulders. He carries it for us. He kills it for us. He buries it for us that we might be found in him. He identifies with us that we might identify with him. And as we do, we know that the blessing of God is upon all those who enter those waters. Sinners who are separated from God, alienated from God, do death and eternal punishment from God. Now in those waters are bound to Jesus, living in the fruit of repentance, and they have the blessing of God pronounced over them. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. The Reformation kicked off, as much as we can say that the Reformation was kicked off by any one thing, with these words from Martin Luther. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So friends, let us walk in repentance. Let us seek the fruit of repentance, knowing well that God is faithful and just to forgive us when we sin, when we confess those sins to him. And remember our baptism, to live in light of our baptism, which unifies us to Christ and to one another. Christ was baptized into us, that we might be baptized into him. So we are. Walk, therefore, always in his love. Let us pray. Father, in light of the great work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we come to you in worship and praise this morning. We are sinners, fallen and dirty, guilty and at fault. But we trust that the blood of Jesus will indeed cover us. We know that there is justice coming, that the axe is on the root, and that a baptism of fire is coming for those who stand firm in their works of evil. But we also know that the mercy of Jesus triumphs over judgment, for his mercy is more. Help us to rest in that this day and every day by faith until we see him with our own eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name, for our good and for his glory. Amen.